Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's New Hampshire presidential primary, which the Democrats are skipping, while on the Republican side, it is a make-or-break moment for Nikki Haley's presidential campaign, as the likelihood of a coronation of Trump looms, in spite of Haley closing the wide gap in the polls. Joining us is Matthew Hongoltz-Hetling, a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He has been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, won a George Polk Award, and has been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among other honors. He's the author of A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. And his latest book is If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. We'll discuss his article at the New Republic, Spot the Nikki Haley Insurgents in a Sea of Red MAGA Hats. And he joins us from New Hampshire. Then, with Israel suffering 24 dead today in its protracted war with Hamas, while casualty figures for Hamas remain unknown, the genocide case brought by South Africa to the United Nations International Court of Justice proceeds with the real possibility of a provisional relief ruling for a ceasefire coming soon. Joining us is Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. And we will discuss her article at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, Why the United States Can't Ignore the ICG Case Against Israel. Then finally, we'll examine the possibility that North Korea's Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war against the South, a cataclysmic scenario which two top American analysts of North Korea have predicted. Joining us is Sumi Terry, a former senior CIA analyst and director for Japan and Korea affairs at the National Security Council. Previously, he was the former deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. And she's the producer of a new film about North Korean defectors, Beyond Utopia. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. 
And joining us now from New Hampshire is Matthew Hongolts Hetling, a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, won a George Polk Award, and has been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among numerous other honors. He's the author of A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. And his latest book is If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. And he has an article of the New Republic, Spot Nickley Haley's Insurgents in a Sea of Red MAGA Hats. And he joins us from New Hampshire. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Hongolds Hetling. Ian, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. And it looks as if it's Donald Trump, not Nikki Haley, who's benefited from Ron DeSantis dropping out, according to the latest tracking poll. So you're on the ground in New Hampshire. What's your sense of whether there's any hope, given that Nikki Haley has thrown all the thrown everything at the wall here in New Hampshire. This is her uh, do-or-die stand. Yeah, I, I wish I could offer some warm words of comfort for those who are lining up to oppose Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, alas, uh, I've seen nothing uh, to suggest that the polls are off. Um, uh, you know, I think in, in my article, as I put it, uh, she has to thread a needle with a wet noodle tossed from the 50-yard line. And I think that assessment has held up in these final days of the campaign. Um, I was at a Nikki Haley event yesterday. And at first, you know, I thought, geez, this is a pretty full room. That uh, This uh, maybe represents some more vibrant support for her than I have uh, previously uh, assumed. But then, you know, when I started thinking about it and kind of mentally subtracting out the press and the uh, campaign staff members, and uh, more importantly, the out-of-state voters from the room, uh, I, I was left with an impression that her actual support in the state is is in that kind of lower tier, uh, certainly not a majority of Republican voters. So when you mention out-of-state voters, that sounds suspicious, and obviously <laughs> Trump has gone on the record railing against the idea that independents and Democrats can vote. And he suggested if Nikki Haley wins at all, it would be because of that kind of interference. And of course, we've also had these robocalls that some of Trump's people have put out using a deep fake of of Biden's voice, urging independents and Democrats not to show up at the polls in Biden's voice, of course. So what's the system there? How can out-of-state people or Democrats um, and independents vote. Yeah, yeah, New Hampshire has what's called an open primary system. It does not provide for out-of-state people to vote, so I should clarify that. Uh, New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation status uh, for, for primary uh, calendars has created a, a, a long tradition for many families from out-of-state for coming in simply for the opportunity to get up close and can uh, uh, personal with the leading candidates. Uh, so a lot of them have kind of a, a storehouses of signed posters of themselves. They're, they're collecting them like baseball cards uh, with, with the presidential candidates from over the years. Uh, uh, but so, the so these are polit political groupies. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, but the open primary system, which is um, very unusual, if not unique among American states, allows for independents to vote in either primary. And it also allows for Democrats and Republicans to switch their party affiliation fairly late in the process. 
So uh, President Joe Biden is not on the ballot, uh, which is the, the result of a tiff between New Hampshire state officials and the National Democratic Party about whether New Hampshire could indeed go first this cycle. Um, and New Hampshire insisted, and as a result, uh, the DNC has kind of uh, stripped it of its its power to award delegates, uh, you know, to to, to the the uh, candidate, uh, and so you know, for, at this time in the cycle, and so uh, Biden is sitting out, uh, which get, opens a door for Democrats who want to stop Trump to express their support for uh, Biden by signing up as Republicans, voting uh, for Nikki Haley against Trump. Uh, so that is a real thing. Um, and there are some numbers to suggest that, you know, thousands of people are doing this. Uh, but uh, the idea that it would have a significant impact on the broader primary race uh, is very much in question. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, it's a real thing. Uh, pe people are doing it. There is some money behind the, the movement to uh, uh, elevate Haley through this effort, uh, but I do not anticipate that it will make a, a, a huge difference. So the Democrats wanted to make South Carolina the first state. Needless to say, South Carolina is largely why Joe Biden became president in the first place. But that has angered, I imagine, a lot of New Hampshire Democrats. They do have a chance to vote <laughs> for, for <laughs> Dean Phillips, the obscure congressman from Minnesota, or um, Marianne Williamson, don't they? They're yes. On the, they're on the ballot, I believe. That, that, that's exactly right. They, they can choose between those two candidates. And I think also a host of like much lesser well-known even than those two. Uh, you know, Dean Phillips, I think his hope is that, you know, Biden uh, uh, drops off the ballot either because of a, a last minute change of heart or, um, you know, perhaps something you know terrible could happen to his health, something like that. He is in a demographic uh, where uh, that's always a possibility. Uh, but the reality is that even if Biden were to somehow magically disappear from the ballot, Phillips has angered the Democratic establishment so much with his candidacy uh, that he would be, you know, very far from first in line uh, as the establishment tried to line up behind a successor. Uh, so, so Phillips may be elevating his uh, uh, status right now or his his profile a bit, um, but I don't know that it's going to work to his long term advantage. Um, but you know, th this is all kind of like in the effort. Er, uh, this is all in the service of trying to stop Donald Trump on what seems like this insanity that he can once again march to the White House, uh, given his track record. Um, so this primary season has been an opportunity for me to see up close and personal um, his relationship with his voters, which remains uh, uh, magically strong, uh, and for me to see how some of the same political dynamics that enabled his 2016 win in the primary uh, remain in, in place today. And, and that's sort of like a fracturing of the establishment. Um, yeah, the, the, the uh, uh, personal ambitions of his opponents, 
you know, so you'll see in case after case, these Republicans that have ventured out into the presidential waters in an effort to unseat him, as soon as they realize they're not going to do it, they drop out and they endorse who? They endorse Trump, the person they've been bad-mouthing and, and talking about as a, a dangerous demagogue. Uh, and they're doing that in the hopes that Trump will take them back under his wing and uh, reward them with with positions in government or at least allow them to uh, maintain their, their political capital moving forward. So let's get your diagnosis then, Matt, on why Trump has such an ardent following and what do they see in this man, this sort of cheesy Bulgarian who's a complete <laughs> ignoramus uh, who ran the most dangerous and incompetent presidency probably in American history, at least since Buchanan. And, you know, I mean, he t- remember he told people to to drink bleach and shine a UV light up there or whatever. Uh, this is who he is. And he's also in the pocket of Putin. And he had no concept of foreign policy except that it's a photo op, you know, standing next to the North Korean dictator. It's pathetic. It's embarrassing that we even have to talk about him. And he was always a joke in New York. But he's got his revenge on everybody. So what is it? What do they see in this guy? The only explanation I can have is that the United States is becoming an idiocracy. <laughs> uh, yes, and if you've seen the film Idiocracy, you know where that ends up uh, by Mike Mike White. Um, yeah, no, um, you know, before the cycle, I thought that they were simply crazy. Uh, and now, you know, that that I've gone out and spent more time on the ground, and, and I've seen his interactions with them, I get it a little bit more. They're not crazy so much as just dramatically, dramatically wrong and irrational. Uh, And and maybe that's a fine line. Uh, But I do see in his crowds a lot of people who I would otherwise think of as, you know, decent, uh, uh, upstanding citizens, you know, people who are kind and and friendly and and, uh, all the other things that we would want from an engaged public. Uh, But I think Trump's popularity comes down to two factors. One is that um, he has sort of a a myth around him that he has perpetuated of being a consummate businessman, which then means to, you know, that he has skills that are valuable in the public sphere and and underrepresented in the public sphere. Uh, They think that he has... um, that he's not in the pocket of lobbyists or, or special interests that because of his wealth uh, and his outspokenness, that he is his own man. So there's a sense that what you see is what you get and that he is going to come in and, and use his own best judgment rather than uh, be be a, a party to a judgment by committee or by unseen forces. So they're like, wrong. Like that. the deep state, right? Yeah, the deep state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and you and I know that uh, that is a completely off-base perception. Um, but but that is, that's the myth under which he operates. The second thing is that uh, he tells them that it is okay to speak in an unguarded way about uh, other people. And this is... I think the most critical component of his appeal is that I think 
in America, many, many, many people have perhaps used a derogatory term or uh, been very thoughtless. You know, maybe they've told a, a joke that we would once call off color, but that now we might call bigoted. And I think when those people are made to feel uh, put on the spot for having done or said or thought something that they previously thought was okay, but are being told um, by, you know, sort of the social justice movement on the left that it is shameful. Um, I think that drives people into the arms of Trump. Uh, Trump is the guy to them who is standing for their right to uh, tell a dirty joke. And that sounds so petty, but it is a very important part of their their sort of self-identity and self-narrative. You know, do I want to go with the party that's telling me that I'm a bad guy? Or do I want to go with the party that's telling me that I'm okay and that the people calling me a bad guy are, in fact, the bad guys? And so I, I saw that over and over and over again um, that, uh, you know, I, I speak in a politically incorrect manner, but that's how I was treated. And that toughened me up. So it's sort of like uh, con contributes to the self-identity of being able to uh, pull one up by one's bootstraps in the face of adversity. And, you know, he, d he tells them that they are where they are, not because of white privilege uh, or, or because of systemic injustice against women and minorities, uh, but uh, uh, because they're just wonderful people. And that's just a, a very powerful story that they hunger for. And as misbegotten as it is, uh, I understand why they are warming up uh, or why, why they are so fond of him in, in that sort of a context. So in other words, Trump is really benefiting from what DeSantis ran on, this anti-woke idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, DeSantis uh, uh, isn't, doesn't have the, the sense of um, independent businessmen or, you know, uh, you know, it, it's Trump's very offensiveness that may, that appeals to him. Uh, right. DeSantis tried really hard to be hated by the left, uh, but Trump does a, a better job on that score. Right. Well, but doesn't this tell us, though, that the political establishment has totally failed and that alienation has taken over uh, from political engagement? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's a decline of institutions that... Uh, you know, they're either not serving the needs of the people or they're serving the needs of the people uh, in a way that is not showing up in the, the sort of virtual and digital representation of the world that most Americans now seem to live in. You know, so, so like uh, uh, maybe there's a pound of chocolate chips cost five dollars and ten cents and it used to cost three dollars and sixty cents. And maybe you don't even buy cho chocolate chips by the pound, but you can still be enraged about that fact if you are keyed into the, the correct social media channels and, and uh, uh, you know, very targeted news feeds. And so I think mm -hmm. that that's really working to Trump's advantage as well right now. So just in closing, then, if you go back to 2016, the campaign of Bernie Sanders was also caught on with a lot of people who were alienated from mainstream politics 
and he was a fresh voice on the left, and Trump was very careful not to ever attack Bernie Sanders. So is there a possibility that the political left, that the, the sclerotic Democratic Party can recognize why people are attracted to Trump and how you could have a message on the left that could outflank Trump because Trump is a phony billionaire and he doesn't give a sh- I can't use that word. He doesn't give a damn about anybody but himself, let alone working Americans. Yes, Bernie Sanders is exactly the, the right thing where he had that he had all of Trump's upsides and none of Trump's downsides. Um, and it seems to be so difficult for the establishment to find those voices of authenticity um, on either side. Uh and when someone like that does rise up, they're doing it in opposition to the establishment that they want to reform and be a part of. And I think people do respond to that. Um, but uh, how the establishment itself can sort of harness that in a positive way, I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, it seems as if uh Something's going to have to give. And I hope to goodness that it is a Bernie Sanders-like figure who is younger and more vibrant arising uh, and uh, speaking truth in a way that will resonate with those disaffected Americans who are otherwise flocking to Trump or to RFK. Well, Matthew Hongold-Hetling, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime, my friend. Okay, I'll take you up on it. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Hongolds-Hetling, who's a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's won a George Polk Award and has been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among other honors. And he's the author of A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. And his latest book is If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. And he has an article at the New Republic, Spot the Nikki Haley Insurgents in a Sea of Red MAGA Hats. And he joined us from New Hampshire. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the probability that the genocide case brought by South Africa to the UN's International Court of Justice will soon result in a provisional ruling for a ceasefire coming soon that will embarrass the Biden administration. Well, I'm doing 10 to 20 in the frozen granite state. Every day I go to work to stamp out license plates. Well, every day I go to work and every night I cry. Cause every license plate I make tells me to live free or die. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. 
Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to the quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. And she has an article at the Canadian Down for International Peace, Why the United States Can't Ignore the ICJ Case Against Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zaha Hassan. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Zaha. And today, Israel suffered 24 dead in its protracted war with Hamas in Gaza. And we don't know what the casualty figures for Hamas fighters are, but we know that at least 25,000 civilians, mostly women and children, have died so far. And there's no end in sight, particularly given Prime Minister Netanyahu's statements about how long the war will go on. And the longer the war goes on, the longer he stays in power. So it's pretty grim in that regard. But are we about to be, or at least the Biden administration, is about to be shocked by a provisional relief ruling from the International Court of Justice, the UN's court, in its uh, genocide case against Israel? Well, you know, it shouldn't be shocked if there is a positive ruling on provisional relief, because the South African case that was presented was was really incredibly well documented, both in terms of the acts committed by uh, Israel in furtherance of what appears to be an unfolding genocide, and also in terms of what it presented uh, towards uh, proving the, the issue of uh, deliberate intent, specific intent to commit genocide. I mean, using the words of Israeli officials that have command and control responsibility, two of whom uh, are in the war cabinet itself, uh, the prime minister, of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, when he um, told Israeli soldiers uh, about to go into battle uh, about uh, biblical references uh, that would permit the killing of innocent uh, men, women, children, and uh, even uh, chattel. And also quoting from the Israeli defense minister who spoke about Palestinians as human animals. to uh, military uh, officials and um, talked about cutting off uh, water and food and and other essential supplies uh, to Palestinians. So I think the U.S. should not be surprised if there is a a favorable ruling on provisional relief. Now, the question is what that provisional relief might look like. Uh, The South African uh, lawyers uh, asked for a ceasefire as well as other measures around, uh, you know, allowing in humanitarian assistance, ending the incitement uh, by Israeli officials, um, and other kinds of relief appropriate given the circumstances. So there's a range of provisional measures that could be taken, which one or how many um, that the court will uh, decide to uh, support is, is another matter. But surely this will be a further embarrassment for the Biden administration, who Biden, immediately after the hideous attack by Hamas on October the 7th, the butchering of civilians inside of Israel, 1,200 dead and 250 
held hostage in Gaza itself. That seems to have been forgotten. But what obviously the calculus on Biden's part was he wanted to keep the donors on side and hug Netanyahu and make it clear that the U.S. has unconditional support for Israel. But now he's lost a lot of the young Democrats and he certainly may lose the state of Michigan. If this ruling comes down from the International Court of Justice in South Africa's favor for provisional release, asking for a ceasefire and the immediate opening of borders in order to get humanitarian aid in, what's the U.S. going to do? I mean, Biden's just going to be caught in a bind, isn't he? Well, what's really um, a problem for this administration is, you know, it, it began with um, this intention to reset and recalibrate the U.S. in terms of its positioning around international law and normative behavior and the respect that uh, it should be shown to multilateral institutions. And so here we are with a Biden administration that is saying that this case that the South Africans are presenting uh, on genocide is without merit and without any factual basis, despite the um, mounds of evidence that were presented in the written filing and the evidence that was um, uh, cited by the South African government coming from civil society organizations, respected international NGOs, um, and, you know, documented by journalists on the ground um, there in Israel-Palestine. But what's really um, problematic is also that the Biden administration has been uh, talking about and issuing strategy papers around how to address mass atrocities and prevent them before they actually happen. So there's even a strategy paper on uh, preventing genocide by this administration. And we have legislation that talks about, you know, what uh, the Biden administration and, and the U.S. administrations uh, in the past and moving forward should do to prevent genocides before they happen. And all kinds of mechanisms and, and all of government approaches to doing that. And this administration has been completely unwilling to uh, even assess what's been happening on the ground and make a legal determination of its own. So once we get, and I hope we get, a determination that um, uh, a prima facie case of, of genocide uh, is taking place, that the administration will take it much more seriously, its obligations, both under U.S. law, but also under international law as a signatory um, to the Genocide Convention of what its obligations are now, uh, given the undeniable reality of what we're seeing taking place in Gaza. Well, Biden himself has said that preventing genocide is both, quote, a moral duty and a matter of national and global importance. And there is a law in place, the Elie Wiesel Genocide and Atrocities Prevention Act, which requires the State Department to monitor events around the world and report on them. So, again, it seems to me that this pending ruling for provisional relief, obviously the, the ruling in the International Criminal Court of Justice will take a long time but a provisional ruling could come down in the next couple of days. And I know that the U.S. is not the only 
country that's dismissed this case out of hand. Germany and others have done so. But if the ruling comes out as you anticipate, and I think you're absolutely right, I just see this being deeply embarrassing for this administration, and I just don't know how they're going to wiggle out of it. They can't deny the ruling itself as much as they're denying the substance of the South African case. No, you're right. I mean, it's it's not just embarrassing for the Biden administration. You know, there are many members of Congress that are deeply, deeply uncomfortable and troubled by um, the fact that it's U.S. weapons that are being used by Israel in the prosecution of the campaign uh, against Palestinians in Gaza. And we're already seeing um, members of the Senate um, now really asking a lot of questions. Just this weekend, Senator Van Hollen, who's a middle-of-the-road senator from Maryland, um, said on national TV that he supports a ceasefire um, because of what he's witnessing um, on the ground. He actually traveled to uh, the crossing uh, in uh, at Rafah on the Egyptian side and saw how humanitarian assistance was being denied entry by Israel. Um, things like water filtration systems, things like you know medical supplies, if one if one box was denied, the entire truckload of uh, supplies was um, was taken offline. So he saw all this and and could no longer abide uh, being a part and a party to this, and is asking uh, President Biden for a ceasefire as well. So I think if we get a provisional relief ruling, other members of Congress uh, are going to have to really think about what their responsibilities are. And, you know, people are moral beings and, um, you know, they have uh, also legal responsibilities in executing their, their positions. And I think many of them are, are, are going to have to really think about this. We already have seen that their, their staff members um, have been deeply troubled by what they are witnessing. Staffers to these members of Congress, they have walked off the job. They have protested their own offices. There have been 800 administration officials who came out to join the protests, the 400,000 people uh, a couple of weekends ago in in Washington, D.C., who came out in protest. 800 administration officials um, read out a, a, a public letter talking about this as genocide. So the pressure is going to grow on the United States um, and on the Biden administration, uh, it's going to come from within even more than it already has. And it's going to come from outside. More, uh, more third countries are also going to feel deeply uncomfortable with towing the U.S. line on this. And so I see the, the um, decision by the International Court of Justice as being um, a turning point when and if uh, we get that provisional ruling in terms of maintaining a, uh, uh, the position of no ceasefire that the U.S. has ma- maintained. So in my opening question, Zahai, I mentioned that the 24 Israeli soldiers were killed today, but we don't know how many Hamas soldiers have been killed or fighters, if, whatever, if you decide that they're not a real army, they're terrorists. But needless to say, 
that has been the objective, from the stated objective on the part of the Israeli military and Netanyahu from day one was we're going to kill, eliminate, I guess they didn't say kill, but eliminate the Hamas fighters. How far along are they? If you assume there's like 35,000 or maybe 10,000 Islamic Jihad, uh, do we know what the casualty figures are so far? We know civilian casualties are over 25,000, but what do we know about the Hamas fighter casualties? We don't really know much about the numbers of Hamas fighters. We've heard in weeks past that, you know, maybe 4,000 or 5,000 Hamas fighters have been killed, um, but we don't, we don't really know. But Israel has talked about um, that number and the corollary number of civilians that have been killed um, as sort of a, as a positive, like that that ratio between Hamas fighters and the civilians that have been killed um, as being a good indicator of, of the success of its um, of its campaign in, in Gaza. And, and, you know, we can't accept that, uh, that you can have double, triple, quadruple the numbers of civilians killed all to, um, to get at one Hamas fighter. We don't, we haven't heard much in the way of, of um, Hamas, uh, high-ranking Hamas officials that have been killed, only that assassination in Lebanon of Saad Haruri and um, one other. But in terms of what's going on in, in Gaza, we don't have uh, that kind of clarity. All we know is that um, you know, upwards of 25,000 Palestinian civilians, 70% of whom are women and children, have been killed. And in, in, in my mind, in the mind of, minds of many people, including uh, the South African lawyers who presented that case before the International Court of Justice, that isn't acceptable. Well, of course, the 24 dead today were largely killed by. Well, it wasn't friendly fire, but they were blowing up a row of buildings and they got blown up by right. their own explosives. Right. But, and they uh, were blowing up that those buildings. Why? Because they're creating a buffer zone. So despite what President Biden has, has called for, which is no reduction of the territory of Gaza, no forced uh, displacement of Palestinians, um, and, you know, no, um, you know, changing of... Uh, uh, the status of Gaza and entry of, of U.S., I mean, entry of Israeli boots on the ground in Gaza permanently. What we're seeing is actually that happening uh, and with really little pushback by the administration, at least no public pushback by the administration. So, so Netanyahu has um, been moving forward with this plan of, of taking over a large swath of of Gaza, making it uh, uh, basically a barren uh, wasteland with no housing for Palestinians to return to, no national cultural institutions left in Gaza. That's why the hospitals have been destroyed. That's why the universities are being destroyed. That's why um, any kind of semblance of, of normal life has been wiped out in, um, in the north of Gaza just to, to make it a fait accompli that Palestinians can't return. So just in the last minute, though, what I don't understand, Zaha, is that 
Netanyahu wants Trump to come back, uh, and so does Putin. It's so obvious. And the, Netanyahu is going to drag this war out. The longer the war drags out, the longer he stays in power. He's polling at about 15%. So he has every incentive to keep this war going and to have Biden twisting in the wind. And I just don't understand, particularly if the ICJ ruling comes down as expected in the next few days, to embarrass him further. Why is he tied to Netanyahu? Can't he find a way out? You know, it's that's a great question. To be honest with you, it, it feels irrational um, to to the average onlooker. And, the, and one of the only ways to understand uh, what what's happening here is to understand that this is a president who who has built his career around support for Israel and has a strong affinity with Israel and doesn't want his legacy to be that he um, did anything to undermine uh, the strength of Israel and, and to not have done everything he could to support Israel's self-defense. And he has very little um, uh, sympathy to Palestinians. I mean, he has shown this um, time and again in, in uh, discounting the Palestinian death toll and in dismissing the idea that this might cost him votes from the Arab and Muslim community. Um, it's, right. it's, it's really um, indicative of just a longtime career of Biden uh, support for supporting Israel, regardless of what that means in terms of U.S. credibility and prestige internationally, or what it means in terms of the lives lost, both Israeli lives and Palestinian lives. Zaha Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Zaha Hassan, who is a human rights lawyer and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, where her research focuses on Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to the quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. And she has an article at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, Why the United States Can't Ignore the ICJ Case Against Israel. We're going to take a restation break and back examining the possibility that North Korea's Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war against the South, a cataclysmic scenario which two top American analysts of North Korea have concluded. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sumi Terry, who's a former senior CIA analyst and director for Japan and Korean affairs on the National Security Council. Previously, she was the former deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. And she's the producer of a new film about North Korean defectors beyond utopia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sumi Terry. 
Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And there are rumors of war suggesting that Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, is actually considering war. And uh, these reports emanate from an article at 38 North by Robert Carlin, a former CIA analyst, and Siegfried Hecker, the former head of uh, Los Alamos. And Sig has has visited North Korea a number of times. So what do you make of these alarms? Well, I understand why we are all sort of panicked because Bob Collin and Sig Hacker, they are two eminent analysts of North Korea, and they're not usually alarmists at all. So when they actually wrote and warned that Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war, um, that obviously is an alarming statement. Um, But I don't, you know, we're not seeing any kind of war preparation or anything like that. So while Colin and Hecker raised very legitimate and serious concerns, I don't think there's any kind of a hard evidence that Kim Jong-un has decided to launch a conflict or any, you know, any conflict, but a nuclear conflict that could lead to the destruction of his own regime. So, you know, I understand the situation is not great, but I just don't see any kind of hard evidence uh, that that's going to happen. Yes, the article suggests, quote, we believe that like his grandfather in 1950, Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war. Now, you said there's no evidence of war preparation. Isn't that what the North Korean regime is all about, preparing for war? They've been doing that for decades, haven't they? Well, I, I meant immediate war preparation. I mean, that's, you know, there's no difference for him to now make this statement um, uh, that it's, it's now something is different. I mean, there are some things that are happening, right? Kim Jong-un made an announcement uh, recently, a very important speech that reunification with South Korea is now impossible, that two Koreas no longer have any kind of kinship or homogeneity but are instead two separate belligerent states in the midst of war. Um, and so this is, doesn't seem like it's a new, usual bluster. It's not, so it should be interpreted as something significant or even momentous. And it's, it's significant because Kim Jong-un is implicitly criticizing his father and even grandfather's policies on unification. So, yes, while, but... That still doesn't mean that Kim Jong-un is going to launch a nuclear war, okay? That's going to end his regime. He's a rational actor who cares about survivability of his regime. So he's also, in his recent statement, didn't Kim Jong-un suggest now that the United States was no longer the number one enemy, that South Korea is now the number one enemy? Yes, so he did. So along with the fact that he said reunification with two Koreas are no longer possible. Um, he did also say that South Korea is now the number one enemy. Um, and he went beyond that. He also said, again, reconciliation with South Korea is impossible. Um, and he did all of this while he was suspending five-year-old confidence-building measures and inter-Korea agreement that was redu- designed to reduce military tension on the Korean Peninsula. So, again... A lot of rhetoric, significant rhetoric that we need to be concerned about. But if you're asking me, is there war preparation as he's being mobilizing to launch a war right now, very soon, that's not going to happen. In fact, why would he be giving 
arms to Ukraine, wouldn't you be stockpiling your own weapons if he's planning to launch a war? So I just don't buy that argument that he made a strategic decision to launch a war right now. Well, what are the relations that he has with both Russia and China? Because that's a part of the calculus in the Sig Hecker article, suggesting that because Kim Jong-un's ties with Russia are are closer than ever, and a few months ago he visited uh, the Russian Pacific ports in Vladivostok and went to an arms bazaar there and met with Putin. And North Korean uh, missiles are now showing up in Ukraine. And China is, is no longer enforcing sanctions. So my question would be, if he plans a nuclear war, Kim Jong-un, I can't imagine his new friends, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping, would uh, sanction that. No, I don't think they will sanction that. Look, North Korea is certainly becoming more dangerous. That is for sure, because we have expanding military capabilities. And as you mentioned, international situation that is increasingly favorable for North Korea meaning you know, intensify U.S.-China competition and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have made the world more polarized. And now we're seeing increasing cooperation between China, Russia, and North Korea. We also have, as you mentioned, both Moscow and Beijing not working with Washington, not enforcing sanctions on North Korea, complete paralysis at the United Nations Security Council, all of that. And as you mentioned, North Korea and Russia are also rekindling military relationship. North Korea supplying ballistic missiles, drones, artillery shells for Russia, and all of that in return for possible help with advanced military technologies. But does that mean that North, now Russia and China will support a war breaking out on the Korean Peninsula? Absolutely not. China's interests always have been no war, no instability, no nukes, and in that order. So let me ask you, though, is there something going on in a broader strategic sense that the U.S., is bogged down, or at least supporting Ukraine, which is bogged down in a World War One style stalemate, which is using a lot of uh, weapons, um, particularly ammunition. And the U.S. is also very distracted with Israel's war in Gaza and the Houthis, etc. Is there any strategy on the part of the Chinese and the Russians working together to distract the U.S. with what's going on in Ukraine? Because... Putin seems to want to want that war to go on for a long, long time and wear out the West and wear out the Western's resolve. And I'm wondering whether or not that helps Xi Jinping in terms of his ambitions over, over Taiwan, etc., and whether or not the North Koreans could create some kind of provocation that would then further distract the U.S. military that seems to be getting stretched pretty thin. The more U.S. is distracted, distracted over world events, obviously it helps China and Russia. And there's a whole, you know, a lot of issues that U.S. is right now distracted over with situation unfolding in the Middle East from Gaza to Yemen. But, you know, and I do believe that if there is a there is a risk of miscalculation, there is a risk of some sort of a border clash that is that escalate out of control. And I'm very, very concerned about it. But I don't agree that China and Russia will support a North Korean invasion that's going to lead to destruction of the North Korean regime. And they have a war on their front doorstep. I don't think this is what they want right now. 
Well, if you think about what a war would mean, apart from you know provocations like he's done in the past, sinking a South Korean ship or shelling an island, if there was a serious attack on the DMZ with Seoul so close to the DMZ, that it would be a catastrophe for South Korea and for this residents of Seoul. I don't know whether they could evacuate. I'm sure there are plans, but it doesn't seem like in a surprise attack that that would work. So just to sort of imagine the scenario, it would be a catastrophe for South Korea, but the response would be the total destruction of North Korea, would it not? Yes, absolutely. War on the Korean Peninsula would be catastrophic. We also have 28,500 American soldiers there. We have 200,000 American expats there. I mean, this would be a disaster. Uh, And even from American perspective, even let's say President Trump comes into the office and Kim Jong-un banks on Trump not responding, that's a high-risk proposition, particularly if American lives are at stake. So I don't think that Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to launch a nuclear attack. That will certainly lead to the destruction of his state and his regime and his life. And do you think he knows that? He's a rational actor and he knows that. Again, the issue is whether, you know, he's he's more emboldened because the international environment is more favorable for North Korea. And he did just say South Korea is going to be the number one enemy. He just made a speech that, you know, that said unification is no longer possible. And so the concern is whether when he conducts a provocation like the one we saw in 2010, when they shelled Yonpyeong Island, and that led to South Korean citizens getting killed. And now we have a conservative president in South Korea who, who will respond. In 2010, when Lee Myung-bak wanted to respond, it was actually the U.S. government that tried that reined him in. Remember, there was also Chonan sinking, a South Korean Corvette that the North Koreans sank in 2010 that killed 46 sailors. It was the United States government that held Lee Myung-bak back from responding. So if Yoon, President Yoon, responds to a North Korean uh, escalation of some kind, it will equally to further escalation. So I am worried about unintended escalation that could lead to a conflict. What I was saying earlier is that I'm not concerned that Kim Jong-un made a strategic decision to go to war, but certainly he could miscalculate, and it's a dangerous situation. And what do you think was the purpose of the trip that Kim Jong-un's sister, who's been elevated to the sort of number two post, she just visited with Putin. What's going on there? That's just a continuing, you know, North Korea continuing to expand its relationship with Russia. Uh, There is a burgeoning relationship between North Korea and Russia that is very concerning. Uh, You know, two isolated countries in the world are now working with each other. And after Kim Jong-un met with Putin, two months after, North Korea had a successful satellite launch when they failed two other times uh, before he met with Putin. So I am concerned about this rekindling of a military relationship uh, between North Korea and Russia and how this new partnership could lead to a mutually beneficial trade in weapons and technology. I don't like the fact that North Korea is supplying ballistic missiles and drones and artillery shells to, uh, for Russia to use in Ukraine. And I am very concerned that Russia, in return, could 
you know, provide help to the North with advanced military technologies. That is a concerning development. But isn't that a possibility that that's already happened? I mean, how did North Korea get the nuclear weapon and the ballistic missile technology so quickly? Well, it's not so quickly. North Korea began its nuclear program in the 1950s. And yes, they did get assistance from both China and Russia, nuclear scientists, engineers, and so on. And of course, in the 1990s, they got help from Pakistan as well. Um, but it is still, you know, North Russia, at least, you know, they were part of the six parties in Russia and China. And there were periods of time when they did sign on to United Nations Security Council resolutions sanctioning North Korea. And in, you know, 2017 till the fall of the collapse of the summit in Hanoi, they were on board with sanctions. Now, of course, they are not enforcing sanctions because it's a different international, you know, situation. Um, but, but it's still, Russia can do more. They are not, you know, right, there, there's so much more they can help in terms of technical support for other, you know, very sensitive technologies. And that's against United Nations Security Council resolutions. So, you know, it's, it would be a reverse of, of what Russia has been doing in recent years for them to do that, for them to actively really support uh, with sensitive technologies. But one of the things that I find troubling about the Russian-North Korean relationship is that Russia is in many ways a mafia state headed by a mafia boss, and North Korea is a family mafia state that resorts to all kinds of criminality. They've been doing all kinds of crypto scams, making billions. They've counterfeited U.S. currency, etc. There's no holes barred as far as the North Koreans are concerned. So with Russia also having that, you know, criminality as well in its political DNA, there all kinds of mischief can result, surely. Well, that's what I'm saying with this new burgeoning relationship between North Korea and Russia is very concerning. And you're very right. North Korea is engaged in all kinds of illicit activities. In fact, that's how they fund their nuclear missile program and fund the regime. And they have long-running illicit money-making activities, right? They do cigarette smuggling, counterfeiting currency, exporting crystal meth, selling ballistic missiles to countries like Syria and Iran. And now, of course, there's cyber, computing, uh, cultivating computer hackers, and they're, you know, they're building a uh, sort of a cottage industry in in hacking international financial institutions and networks. Um, now they're getting into, you know, making forays into cryptocurrency and all of that. And, you know, as, as you said, you know, from one mafia state to another mafia state, they are doing all kinds of illicit activities. This burgeoning relationship is just a bad, bad sign. We, you know, this is not good for the United States and the world. But just in closing, the good news is that you don't think, in spite of the fact that Sig Hecker has spent more time in North Korea than just about any other uh, Western official, and having been the former head of Los Alamos, he clearly knows a lot about nuclear weapons, and your former colleague uh, Robert Carlin as well is very well-versed. The fact they're warning that North Korea is planning some kind of an attack, you don't buy it. I guess that's the good news, right? The bottom line is nobody knows. Stick Heckle doesn't know. Bob Collins does. They don't know. I don't know what Kim Jong Un is thinking. I respect these two scholars, experts, so we should take their warning seriously.
But if you ask me, I don't see any kind of hard evidence that they're doing an active war preparation to launch a war. I don't think Kim Jong has made a quote unquote strategic decision to launch a war that would end his regime. No. But I am concerned that unintended conflict could break out on the Korean Peninsula because Kim Jong-un could always miscalculate and there can be escalation that leads to a conflict. Well, excuse me, Terry, I thank you so very no, much. No, there, is no good news. there is no good news when it comes to North Korea. <laughs> I get it. And I thank you for joining us, Sumi Terry. Sure. Thank you for having me on. And again, I'll be speaking with Sumi Terry, who's a former senior CIA analyst and director for Japan and Korean affairs on the National Security Council. Previously, she was the former deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. And she's the producer of a new film about North Korean defectors, Beyond Utopia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.